The world I live in is obsessed with success. The fear of failure is the scream in our ear when we wake up in the morning, and it's the hurricane that sends us hurtling through the day. Though it wasn't always that way for me. When I was younger, I was quite happy to fail. It might be nice to start deliberately aiming low again, like the comedian Stuart Lee, who in the late 1990s had the chance to have it all and chose to do nothing much with it. The pivotal moment when I thought this is all wrong was about 10 years ago when my agency, which had the agency I was with had been one of the the people that had changed the game to use like media speak on alternative comedy, they'd managed to market it. But they did have a Christmas party 10 years ago where there were dwarves handing out canapes and you know, if you'd said when I was 15 and I used to see stand-ups opening for the fall and Dexys Midnight Runners when they used to tour with alternative comics, if you'd said, you're going to be an alternative comic, I wouldn't have thought it meant that I would, be a, I would be at a Christmas a party getting a canapé from a dwarf dressed up as a Christmas elf. I think that's the single most naff showbiz thing that's ever happened to me. So now a good thing is to just not go to anything, because you never know, there might be dwarfs handing out canapés dressed as Christmas elves, you know. It's up to them. I talked to one of the guys and he said, we mainly get seasonal work. <laughs> So, it's not political correctness gone mad, is it, to have to have a concern about that? No, I think, I think, it's, I think it's fine because it's not really about the dwarfs. It's about the yeah. relationship between you and, and your agents. Yeah. And it's almost as if you're seeing them lie at the corner of your eye and yeah, you're seeing yeah. the expression, the facial expression that they yeah, yeah. that they didn't want you to see. Yeah. Stuart says you can make quite a good living. All you need is a few thousand people willing to spend ten pounds a year on you. John Hegley was a veteran, you know, and, and one of the, the founders of alternative comedy. Yeah, he said if you go back every 18 months to the same art centres and the show's 80% different and you've always got something to sell, like a CD or a book, then the economics of that are totally doable. Mm. I did some DVDs with a little company that runs out of Cardiff and I sell them out of a cardboard box at the end of the show and I get more from that than I did for the supermarket DVD release and television broadcast of Jerry Springer the Opera, for example. Actually, it's just about perception, you know, it's a practical level, it makes more sense. Even though I've got myself ensnared in some never-ending success-maintaining spiral, the people I've always admired the most are those who don't have that urge. There isn't any future. Like Frank Sidebottom. In the late 1980s, I was the keyboard player in his band. Get off your backsides. Because I am the Antichrist. I am an anarchist. The thing I remember sort of most about him was that we were playing a show in Dudley and there was only about kind of 20 people there. And what had happened was Frank had decided to be more professional sounding, so he'd got in like a proper guitarist and a proper saxophone player. It was kind of ridiculous because he'd gone from sounding like the old plinky plonko blimey big band to sounding a bit like kind of, you know, foreigner. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it was a kind of creative failure. Mm. And by the middle of the tour, word had got around that we were no longer good and people stopped coming. Yeah. I want to be And by the time we got to Dudley, there was like 15 people in the audience. 
and they were so disregarding us that they split up into two teams and started playing a, a game of football and every so often a ball went onto the stage and you know one of us would have to sort of kick it back and and I was just you know happy to be in the band so yeah. I, so, but the guitarist who was like a proper you know professional kind of muso was looking more and more furious and, and humiliated and embarrassed and we were all kind of looking to Frank to see how he'd respond and, and he came off stage and he took off his head and he said you know that's the best show we've ever done because yeah, yeah. he loved the failure of it thank you I've always idealised Sidebottom as a kind of Gandhi-like figure in his perverse craving to aim low. But he died penniless, whereas the people he massively inspired, like John Shuttleworth and Mrs Merton, went on to huge success. What if I'd got it all wrong? Maybe he hadn't been happy with his choices at all. The last time I saw his son, Sterling, he was about ten years old. Now he's in his thirties. He had his own sort of ideals and he wouldn't be swayed off the path. What were his ideals? Just his own humour and if it was right for him, it was the way forward. It wasn't just as Frank either, it would just be around the house. <laughs> like what? He'd make up daft songs that he used to sing to us as kids and if we thought they were annoying, he'd just persevere with them more and more until he sort of ground us down and we were singing along with him too. I remember the time he supported Bross at Wembley, which yeah. is probably, you know, the biggest show business, or potentially the biggest show business moment of his career. Yeah, definitely. It's like 50,000 people in the audience. This was his kind of time to shine. Yeah. And so he went on stage and just did a medley of Bross cover versions. When will I, will I be famous? I am actually... And people started throwing bottles and uh, he lasted about five minutes. I owe you 20 pence, which is nothing at all. Went off stage and Harvey Goldsmith was standing backstage glaring at him and he walked straight up to him and said, I'm thinking of putting on a gig at the Timperley Labour Club. Have you got any tips? <laughs> You know he did, he really did. Thank you. He used to tell us a story about the Bross gig as well. He said that he started off by hands up if you like, Luke, and obviously everyone was going wild, and hands up if you like, Matt, and then hands up if you like, Betamax. And it was total silence, but he's done it to amuse himself and not however many thousands of people have turned up to watch Bross. What would he do for money if he didn't have any? He'd just look at booking a, a gig in somewhere, just try and keep a sort of steady flow of gigs coming. And would he spend it on complicated props? Yes, I mean, he'd go out and he'd buy, like, a big Tracy Island or something. He's like, right, you can use that for Frank's bedroom in the future. Or, and he'd probably play with it himself a bit in the, in the meantime. And then get to the point where my mum would, at the time would be saying maybe you should have looked after the money a bit better and he's like well it'd be alright you know something else will come up <laughs> and he was always quite confident that there was always something around the corner that would just keep him going <laughs> to that next week But when people like John Shuttleworth and Carolina Hearn went on to enormous wealth and success yeah. did a part of him feel resentful or, or was he um, quite happy in, in the shed? I think his only resentment was that he didn't get the recognition that he wanted for it 
I don't think he was resentful of the wealth and obviously the success, but I just think he just wanted a little nod as he'd given sort of the help up that did got. Oh, I should be so lucky, 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 lucky. I should be so lucky in love. When he died, there was about two days after he died, there was a piece in the Manchester Evening News about how he was going to have to be buried in a pauper's grave. Yeah. Well, after it happened, we contacted a few funeral parlours. My brother at the time had just turned 18, he was still at college. My sister was expecting, so she was paying for things for the baby. But I didn't have that much money. So we just phoned about a few funeral directors, seeing what the, the options were, the cheapest options. And one of them suggested that there is a pauper's funeral. And um, did they say what a pauper's funeral entailed? Uh, they said it. They just, said, do you have to go back in time 200 years? <laughs> yeah, well, they said it. The funeral directors did say that the pauper's funeral, it's... It's not as bad as it really sounds. It was a coffin, but it was a box, but it was obviously, it wasn't coffin shaped. It was... What uh, shape was it? I think it's just like a rectangular square box. Probably like a cargo crate or something, I presume. (laughs) Uh, There was no real service, and then obviously... Would nobody say anything? I'm not too sure. They said, I can't remember if if it would have been a burial or a cremation, but they said, obviously, there wouldn't have been a gravestone. Just everything's as basic as it could be. I should be so lucky in love. You know I should. I really should. Thank you. Half an hour after the Manchester Evening News ran their feature saying Frank was destined to be buried in a pauper's grave, a few people tweeted the article to me. I suggested on Twitter that we hold a funeral fund collection. And within, what, two days... We'd had, I think, £23,000 of yeah, donations. it was crazy. It was We couldn't believe it. We were just hoping for help towards paying for the funeral. And I think within about three or four hours, there was enough donations to cover that. And then with extra money that come in, then we were able to organise the sort of free concert in Manchester for it as well, which all the people that helped donate... He gave something back for them. And it wasn't even that the money stopped after £23,000. We had to stop it. Yeah. Because everyone just wanted to give money and there was nothing to give it for yeah. anymore. Exactly, yeah. Thank you very much. We used to play the band uh, a long time ago with Chris. Uh, we had a chart success and we all got very, very drunk. But we all very, very much enjoyed it. It was just unbelievable how fast it went off and then obviously we got told that it was going to put a stop on it and before the time had passed there were still people trying to beat the deadline we couldn't believe the response it got Sterling Seavey it's great to know that his father chose to aim low and was really happy doing it not pretending to be happy not everyone is like that take Paul Peterson he was once a huge child star a member of Disney's Mickey Mouse Club He was a mouseketeer. Age nine, I went out on an open interview that was set up by my then singing and dancing teacher. And lo and behold, I landed a job. They hired 16 kids out of that first uh, 5,000. And I was one of them. Wow. So was this like the kind of golden age of mouseketeering? Well, it was the very first year. Who's the leader of the club that's made for you and me? I was one of the first ones hired, and seven weeks later, I was the first one they fired. 
Why? What, what had you done? Well, this all started with my name. My real name is William Paul Peterson. So while I was a little boy, under the age of five, people teased me, Willie P.P.? No, he won't. Willie P.P.? No, he won't. So I, I don't like nicknames, and they ended up calling me Mouse, which caused a lot of friction. Paul was fired after Walt Disney himself happened to spot him behaving in an antisocial manner. You see, I punched this guy in the stomach who called me Mouse, and his name was Lee Travers, big fat guy. When he called me Mouse, uh, by surprise, after lunch, I punched him in the stomach, said, don't call me that fatso, and standing behind Lee Travers was Walt Disney. But this wasn't the end of Paul's show business career. Having been freed from my Mouseketeer duties, I was able to go out on auditions, and by that time, having learned my lesson, I was pretty focused every time I went out on an interview. I wanted the job, because I didn't want anybody else to get the job. What did casting agents say in you? Were you a kind of goofy kid, or were you a all-American, like, good-looking kid? I, I think it was the all-American thing, kind of a gap-tooth, uh, tousled-haired kid with a twinkle in his eye that was afraid of nothing. Paul got the part of the teenage son, Jeff Stone, on the ABC sitcom The Donna Reed Show. He filmed 275 episodes between 1958 and 1966. He became a really big star. Well, I had a big song that became a Father's Day classic because I sang it on the show to my TV father, Carl Betts, called My Dad. How, which, how did that uh, go? To this day. Well, it's a very touching song. He isn't much in the eyes of the world. He'll never make history. No, he isn't much in the eyes of the world. But he is the world to me. My dad. And it was, you know, it's a very sweet song and perfectly appropriate for Father's Day. And so every year it is dusted off and played. To me is everything. And was there a day when you woke up one morning and just realized that you were no longer a star? Oh, that took four years for that message to come home. In 1966, we finished production on the Donna Reed Show, so I was 20 years old. And in that year, immediately following the Donna Reed show, I worked 16 weeks. The next year, eight weeks. The year after that, four weeks. And by 1969, I didn't work at all. What did you and do? And the message was, well, I, look, I didn't handle it very well. I mean, I thought I was being raised to be the next Cary Grant, you know, my generation's Cary Grant. Well, the problem is, it's the late 60s, the world had changed, there were half a million troops in Vietnam, and it was uh, tune in, turn on, and drop out. And there were long hair and, yeah. and uh, people fighting against the system, and frankly, the all-American boy just didn't fit. This is the end, beautiful friend. Uh, I, mean, I mean, you could have adapted. You could have grown your hair long. and, and well, But I would not have been me. And I have always tried to hold on to that core person that I am, which is relatively conservative and faith-based and professional. And I didn't much care for the world that I found myself part of. And no less than Mickey Rooney came to my house knowing that I was in trouble because by this time I was angry and bitter and, you know, what have you done to me? And Mickey said to me, Paul, 
You have to get out of town, get your education, because Hollywood is not going to let you work for the next 30 years. And he was dead right. Wow. I mean, that's how blunt it is. Well, it was, coming from a Mickey Rooney. And so Paul quit acting to become a limousine driver. You didn't ever find yourself driving the limousine and then you'd pick up a star and it would be Donna Reed or someone like that. No, of course, that happened quite a bit. In fact, it became one of the measures for me of the size of the character of the people I was picking up. For example, Jay Bernstein, a very famous manager, was absolutely stunned when he saw me, but then he came over and shook my hand and said, Paul, I'm really proud to see that you're out there working. You know, it's kind of fun to go pick up someone that you admire, like a Betty Davis. And would you tell her that you were once a Hollywood star yourself? Well, I didn't have to tell her. She knew. You know, it's a very small community, John. Uh, Some people handled it very well, and other people just found it too difficult to have me come drive them. So many performers i found are so anxious about their own notoriety. Any sign that uh, fame can slip away has to be kept at arm's length or farther. Paul says being a child star is poison. It's transient and shattering to your sense of self when it drains away. And so he set up a kind of drop-in centre, communion, for child stars called a minor consideration where he teaches them how to aim low how to embrace failure. How I'm imagining you and the children in your care is that they come in angry and, and the ego's all twisted and confused and you just, you just straighten them out. You just kind of tell them what life actually is about. Well, it can happen that way. Uh, we have had several interventions, but mostly it's, hey, why don't you come over to my house person walks into a room and there are 15 genuine former kid stars and there they are. It's like, what are you going to say to them? You don't understand being famous? No, excuse me, we do understand that. All of us get it. And when you look around a room of former kid stars, you might see a doctor, a lawyer, an Indian chief, and you might see a derelict too. We don't put much stock in where people end up because life is a very difficult thing, especially when you carry this kind of baggage. On May the 2nd, Paul helped to organise a party for child stars. Some of them were still big. Others were in that painful place where aiming high had turned into aiming low. We sent a former American child actor, Starley Kine, to meet them. My younger sister and I spent a great deal of our childhoods posing for teen magazines. Not a scrap of photographic evidence of this exists, since it all took place in front of my bedroom mirror. We were practicing for when we made it as child stars. We weren't going for sexy, or even pretty. We just wanted to show that we were normal, fun-loving sisters who happened to be famous, even though we weren't. Neither my little sister nor I ever landed a single part, not even a catalog. I don't remember when we decided to stop trying, or if we ever officially did. The thing about trying to be a child star is you can only do it for so long. Sooner or later you wake up and you're an adult. The actor's fun looking ahead day is taking place in Los Angeles. I stop and talk to three little girls, and they proudly rattle off their accomplishments. I've been on Parenthood 
you couldn't really see me because I was in the background, but I was walking with a parent, like, outside. Do you guys feel famous? Yeah. Not really. Not really. I do. Do you imagine you're going to act forever? I hope. Even when you're, like, 30? <laughs> you know, age is just a number. Well, I feel like it's always kind of hard because there's so many people that look like you in this business, but it's my passion that keeps me going. Do you ever think about quitting? No, never. No, that's like not an option. Besides all the junk food and the temporary tattoo booth and the rock climbing wall, the only scheduled business event is a panel composed of former child stars. Sarah Gilbert from Roseanne is on the panel. She was an early role model of mine. The aspiring child stars sitting cross-legged on the ground around me are much more excited to see a man named Phil Morris talk, who plays Mr. Mosby on the sitcom The Sweet Life on Deck. All in all, the vibe is upbeat and hopeful. The usual advice is given, like, make sure to go to college. And then college was important for so many reasons. Of course, there was the education, the experience to go and be a normal kid at, at school and that he was on set tutor. A little girl in a purple shirt with tassels raises her hand. She takes a deep breath, looks straight at the actor who plays Mr. Mosby, and asks, do you ever feel like you just can't do it anymore? The former child stars in the panel are clearly taken aback. And then Mr. Mosby says, yeah, he does. After the panel ends, I run after the girl in purple. Her name is Julia. She's wearing mirrored sunglasses so I can literally see myself through her eyes. I ask her about her question. Sometimes, do you ever have the doubt that you really can't do it? Because sometimes I have that feeling. It's just if I get at least like 50 no's like in a row, it just might break down my confidence a little. How old are you? I'm 10 years old. I started doing it when I was five, so, yes. Have you gotten 50 no's in a row? Yes, I have, for many, many years. <laughs> yes. Have you um, gotten a part? I have, in a small commercial mm-hmm. for the Bounty Paper Towels. It has not aired yet, but I still got the money for it. It's not what I'm excited about. Is it going to air? <sighs> I don't know if it's going to, but I still get credit for it. What it's kind of paper towels? Bounty. The one sheet picker upper. <laughs> Is that your line? No. Did you have a line? Oh. So did it feel like you're on your way? Yeah, I felt like I was on my way, but like a slug making it up a mountain. Julia's only been living in Los Angeles since the beginning of the year. She moved here from Arizona with her mom while the rest of her family stayed behind. Who's in Arizona? My dad, my brother, my sister, my brother-in-law, and just my grandparents, my aunts, my uncles, my cousins, all my friends. And the reason you guys are here, you and your mom, is to pursue your acting career? Yes. So you announced, you're like, I'm here, I've gotten to L.A., Los Angeles, here I am, let's do this. Yeah, I I say that inside my head a lot, and I'm saying, I'm going to go for it, and I'm going to make it. When were you at the point when you really thought, I might just give this up? When I might just give this up is... I finally got out here, and I was thinking, you know, I kind of want to move back to Arizona, just live my life again. Eventually, if I just spend time with my friends and just have fun, I feel better again, and I just feel ready to get back out there and take more rejection. (laughs) And with that, Julia tells me that she has to go, that her mom is waiting. 
She waves goodbye, and in my head, I make a silent wish on her behalf. Oh, advertising gods, let that paper towel commercial air just once, preferably at an hour between when Julia gets home from school and her bedtime. And let a time difference miracle occur that allows it to also air in Arizona so her dad and brother and sister and brother-in-law and grandparents and aunt and uncle and all of her friends can see it too. Because it's hard enough being a kid without having your fate rest on whether or not a paper towel will pick your spirits up. Starly Kine. There's a man in Fathersham, Kent, called John Burke. I've never met anyone quite like him. His brain is a wide-open door. His capacity for learning and retaining information is incredible. I read all the time. I've never stopped reading. I mean, I read two, three, four books at a time, so I can get through sort of 10, 12 a week. I read a good newspaper, and I tend to watch a lot of documentaries and bits and pieces, but I, they're not particularly of interest, only in the sense that it's like showing off because I actually know everything they're going to say moments before they say it. I've got an incredible memory. And none of it goes? None of it vanishes? Uh, not really, no. I've never been lost. I, we go to Venice, but I, I hadn't been to Venice for 30 years, and I could take my wife and myself straight across Venice through the back streets without recourse to a map. So when you meet kind of regular people, does it cross your mind that you, you know that your brain is just more sort of fluid and fast than, than they are? Well, yeah, but everyone makes a joke about it. I mean, at work, I mean, there's a couple of chaps, it's University Challenge, they call me, or ask John, he'll know this, and if... Polish driver gets lost that they always send me out. Just ask John. John has won the final of University Challenge. His team was the Open University. He got the most starter questions right of anyone. He's been a runner-up and mastermind too. Has anybody seen in your you know enormous brain potential for you to be like an incredibly successful person. Has, has anyone ever offered you that opportunity? Um, I've had some various ideas on things. I mean, I drew up an idea for a Tempeg, and some chap offered me like £30,000 for the idea, and I've just never followed it up because he wanted me to make a, an example up, and so I've never followed it, but maybe I should. So, what you chose to do with this superpower is essentially nothing. You, you, uh, <laughs> you've chosen to be a postman. But what I want is, is to sort of be able to earn a living and have time to do the things I want to do. Riches and stuff, it doesn't really bother me. I've never been my sort of god. What I've always wanted to do is just know things. Personally, I think people would probably pay to do my job. It's a great job. You know, you, you're driving around beautiful countryside with the radio playing and it's just, you know, I can't think of anything better, really. It gives me time. I mean, today I've, I've finished in the afternoon and it's a lovely sunny day. And I mean, what a fantastic job that gives you that opportunity to spend the rest of the day doing whatever you want. I had my own business where I worked myself into the ground. I worked 120 hours a week. It was, I was working from 7 in the morning till 2 in the morning. I used to run the Anchor Pub in Faversham. I ran that for three years. And, you know, I ended up with the business sort of failing and losing thousands of pounds and stressing on that. And I just thought, hang on a minute, this is ridiculous. And when I sort of stumbled into this job, it's just of no stress whatsoever. So you just go out and enjoy yourself. And I'm driving around some of the most beautiful countryside in England. It's just really sort of a no-brainer, really. And I've got plenty of time to do all the things I want to do. I think you should just try and just be happy, more happy. Mm-hmm.